Why are you here? Not why are you here today, but bigger than that. Why are we here? I think we've all asked that question at different times, haven't we? Just Maybe it was when we were younger, or we were kind of in an interesting season of life, and we were just trying to kind of find our, our purpose and, and our meaning in life. And we asked that question, why are we here? I, I think it's a question that, that humanity has been searching for for a long time. And I think depending upon the season of life we're in, we, we tend to ask it more often. Like, like why, why, really, why am I here? What, what do I contribute? What is the purpose? What is the meaning of my life? And as a church, we are looking at the book of Genesis, the, the first book of the Bible. We're asking big questions. And, we, and as we look at Genesis 1, we see that God is giving us some big answers to what he's done and what he's created. But there's this interesting little section in Genesis chapter 1, the last three, almost at the very end, there's three little verses that, that if we miss them, I, I think we can miss the answer to that question. And in those three verses... God tells us something about us. Notice what he says. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now those three verses, they have a lot to say. And those three verses really form a thesis statement for what we're going to see unfold in in the rest of the Bible. Those three verses are going to show us so much, but yet if we don't understand those three verses, then I think we're going to miss something really powerful in our lives. If we don't understand those three verses, then I think we're going to continue searching for ourselves. I was reading an article this week that, uh, about a situation that happened in Iceland several years ago, and there was a tour in Iceland, and a woman went missing. Well, thankfully, they solved that, missing, that, that um, mystery because... The woman that went missing was actually on the search party looking for herself. I, I got to read this article to you because it's just, it's too good. It says this. It, it says that a group of tourists spent our Sunday night looking for a missing woman near Iceland's Eldga Canyon, only to find her among the search party. The group was traveling through Iceland on a tour bus and stopped near a volcanic canyon. Soon there was word of a missing passenger. The woman who had changed clothes didn't recognize the description of herself and joined the search. But the search was called off about 3 a.m. when it became clear the missing woman was in fact accounted for and searching for herself. It's funny, but there's there's an inherent reality in there, isn't there? That when we miss Genesis 3, or Genesis 1, 26 through 28, those three verses, we find ourselves in this pattern of searching for ourselves when the description of ourselves has been right in front of us the entire time. And how many of you know that in life we just find that we, we find ourselves in these seasons where we're just continually trying to, to, to figure out the, the question or the answer to that question. And so we, we change jobs, we find new relationships, we, we, we move to a new place, we do all these different things, hoping that we're going to find ourselves. But I think God wants us to see today, as we look at Genesis 1, that these three verses are going to tell us 
what we need to know. They're going to give us the starting point and God's plan for our lives and who you are. So here's a question I want to ask. When you read those verses, Genesis 1, 26 and 20 through 28, do you see yourself? Like when you read that description, do you see yourself in that story? Or are you still trying to find yourself in somewhere else? And I guess the question is, when you read those verses, do you see the real you? Or, or how do you even find the real you? You know, my kids, uh, Emma turns 10 on Tuesday, Hallie's 8, Chloe's 4. They love to talk about what they're going to do when they grow up. Anybody else have kids like that? How many of you remember when you were a kid? Just love to talk about what are you going to do when you grow up? You know, and, and Hallie, she's going to be a, a kindergarten teacher. Emma, she's going to be a Christian scientist. Chloe, she's going to be a... a like, you can't jump motorcycles over the Grand Canyon, right? If you know Chloe, you're like, she is going to do that, actually. But I remember when I was a kid, it was all about, like, this dream of what was I going to do? Where was I going to go? Who was I going to meet? Where, who could I be? But how many of you know as you get older, something seems to change? We, we begin to wonder. We, we begin to stop wondering about who we're going to be, and we begin to just kind of start searching for ourselves in these cultural scripts and these stories that society wants to tell us. And we find ourselves... Really, really living into a story that's not ours, but it's easier. And it's a story that culture or society says, and here's how you should think, and here's how you should feel, and here's how you should live. But what would it look like if we stopped following the story that culture tells us or that we want to tell ourselves, and we started dreaming again? See, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God gives us the dream. And I think when we live into it, it helps us to learn to wonder at what God is created us for. You know, what, one thing I love about Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is this, this book of Genesis was written 3,500 years ago. And 3,500 years ago, God told us something amazing. And when we read it right, we see that what God is doing is he's affirming who we are as we've been created. He's giving us dignity. He's showing us honor and respect. He's giving us purpose. And God, in Genesis 1, is saying from the very beginning, I made the world, I made everything you see, and then I made you. And I made you with a plan, and I made you with a purpose, and that is bigger than anything you could ever imagine on your own. I think there's something powerful that can happen when we get this, when we can grasp it and understand it and digest it, because it has the power to really change the way we live, and not just someday, but today. You know, these last few weeks, we've been just diving into Genesis chapter 1. I promise we'll pick up speed as we go. But Genesis chapter 1 is so important because, again, it's foundations, it's beginnings, it's origins, it's what we need to know. It's answering those big questions. And if you've been following along with us, you've probably noticed that there is this pattern in creation. We talked about this last week, that there's this pattern in creation. We see that God creates and then he gives purpose. Like, God creates and then he gives life. He fills it with life and gives it purpose. And we saw this, that day one corresponds to day four. God says, let there be light. And then on day four, he gives purpose to that light. It tells time. It lights the day. It lights the night. On day two, we see that God created the heavens and the seas. And we see that on day five, God creates birds and he creates fish. He creates. He gives it life. He gives it purpose. Day three and day six, we saw last week that God creates this dry ground, this earth, this, this grass, these mountains, these beautiful trees, and then God puts animals. After last week, Courtney said, I'm never going to forget that on day six, God created the creeps. Just, we, we, you know, we kind of discovered that together last week. But at the end of day six, we see that God creates mankind, and he gives us purpose. 
And I think as we look at this, we're going we're gonna to see something really beautiful for us as we dive into. Because if you've been watching throughout Genesis 10, you'll notice that 10 times God says, let there be and there was. Right? Let there be light and there's light. Let there be fish and there's fish. Let there be cows and there's cows. I mean, let there be. It's like the decree of a king, right? The king says, let there be, and then it is. But I want you to notice, when we get to Genesis 1, 26, God changes his tune. Instead of saying, let there be and there is... God says, let us make. And so God is changing his tune because what he's saying is he's creating the path, the plan, the purpose forward for life. In a way, it reminds me of, uh, imagine you're, you're sitting around with Walt Disney very early on and Walt Disney is rolling out the plans for Disney World, right? And in those plans for Disney World, Walt is saying, look, here's what I'm gonna make. Here's what I'm gonna create. This is what it's gonna be and here's gonna be the purpose for what it is. In a way, God is saying that in, in verse 26. He's rolling out the plans for why he created the world, the ancient blueprint, the plan for you and for me, the plan for our lives. God says, this is my plan for the world. Notice his plan, verse 26. It says this, And God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on earth. But there's something right there in verse 26 that if we miss it, we miss exactly what God is saying. We miss the entire thing. We begin to see this as somebody else's story. Oh, that's cute, bedtime story. God said, no, this is your story. Notice in verse 26 what he says. He says, then God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice it sounds like God's talking to somebody, doesn't it? Like, let us make so who's God talking to? What's God doing? Is he like Gollum, you know, from Lord of the Rings, just kind of talking to himself, you know, in a third person? I don't think so. You, you know, Bible scholars kind of camp this out in two spots, right? They camp this in two places. They say that well, God could be speaking to like a court of angels, right? So, so God is the creator, but, you know, his angels are his, his workers. And so God's speaking to a court of angels, and he's saying, hey, we're going to make this. We're going to make men and women, and they're going to have this purpose, and, you know, here's what we're going to do. And maybe that's it. I don't know. There's another theory that that's probably catches more traction that, is that right now God is opening the curtain a little bit for us and he's letting us peek and see a glimpse of the Trinity. That God's showing us that, that the Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit are speaking to one another here. And really, if you look at Genesis 1, you see the picture of the Trinity, right? You see, you see God the Father create. You see the, the, the word, uh, let, let, you know, let there be light, let, let there be fish, let there be cows. You see the, the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep. You see all three persons. That, now, the ancient Near East readers wouldn't have no idea what that means. And even we struggle, right, understanding what it is. But we know it works, just like the flux capacitor, right? Doc Brown said it worked, it worked. We don't know how he did it. We see the Trinity right here. Could God be talking to Jesus saying, hey, let's make man in our image? Maybe. We don't know. We don't know for sure. We'll find out one day. But what we do know is that God is telling us something about his creation. He's telling us something about you and about me. Because when he says, let us make man in our image after our own likeness, God is revealing the why behind why he created you. See, notice again in verse 26. He says, let us make man in our image. There's a really cool way of saying this in Latin. I'm trying to teach you guys as much Latin as I can. It's the word imago Dei. Say that with me. Imago Dei. Bring it together. Imago Dei. 
All right, use that this week, right? See what, how people look at you. They think you're really smart. You guys know Latin. So the Imago Dei. And so the idea is that it's the image of God. And so what does this mean for us? Like, why is God telling us this? Because there's something important here that if we miss it, we're not going to understand it. We're going to be like, oh, that sounds good, cool, God's image, don't we really get that, whatever. But again, let's take it back to context, right? We've been talking about the, the idea of who God's writing to. So the ancient Near East, elite kings would create statues. Here's a picture. And so they would put these statues all over the kingdom, and these statues represented the king. These statues represented the power of the king, the rule of the king, the authority of the king. They reminded people who the king was in case they forgot. What do you think they called these statues? Images. So God is saying, hey, I'm creating images too, and it's you. You're the image of me. Isn't that cool? Like God's saying, you're my little statues, but you're not made of stone or brick. You are made of life and blood and soul and spirit. And in that, I have given you a purpose and a plan for your life. God is, is saying that you are my images to project the reign of the king that created you and to rule everything that I've put you in charge of. See, one of the realities that we see in Christianity and we see in the Bible that no other worldview has that no other belief system has, is that God created us with purpose, and that purpose is to rule, and that purpose is to have authority over what God made. I mean, if you just look at any other belief system out there, it's all that God, you know, you're created by these little gods, and you know, don't, don't make them mad. You're really to make them happy and to, to serve them. Or just think about um, scientific naturalism, right? Just the idea that everything happened by accident, and that we are all here uh, because of um, happenstance, and everything is just atoms and matter and nothing, there's nothing soulish about us. Well, well they would say that you, know, you really don't have a purpose. You're just kind of there. But the Bible is very different. God is saying from the very beginning of the Bible that, hey, I've created you for a reason. And I've created you to be like me. This means that we aren't just created by God, but we are created like God. And that's just kind of hard to get our minds wrapped around. But, but God is saying that I've created you to reflect me to the world around you. I've given you authority over everything that I have created. And that means that God says, I've given you the ability to rule, and I've given you the ability to project, and I've given you the ability to love. See, one of the things about being made in the image of God is that being made in God's image means that we have characteristics of God in us because we're made in his likeness. This is why we have the ability to love. This is why we care about justice. This is why we have the power to care for other people and we have the ability to rule over what God has made. And God has made you and me unique for a reason. And it's a really important job description. Notice again, verse 26. Notice what he says. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let's, put, let's stamp them as, as images of the creator king and then let's put them in this world that I created so they can rule it well and have authority over it well. And so the way God says this, he says, I want to give them dominion over all I've created. Now, now this word dominion, it's not mystical. The word dominion really just means that we rule or have power over something. And I love what Tim, uh, Tim Mackey says of the Bible Project about this. He says that this idea of ruling, God gives us this picture of gardening. But it's bigger than a garden. It's bigger than gardening. It's advancing the human project. It's, it's advancing the, the idea of, of community. Yeah, it's growing food, but it's building houses and building neighborhoods and building workplaces. 
And it's using what God created for good and in the right way. See, ruling day-to-day is our job description, but it's not grunt work. It's beautiful empowerment over what God has made. See, God is saying, this world I created, you are the groundskeepers. This summer, we went and watched uh, uh, fireworks at Coors Field. Anybody been to Coors Field for 4th of July to see the fireworks? It's amazing. And by happenstance, we bought tickets in the outfield. And if you sit in the outfield, they actually move you down on to the field. And so we actually got to go sit on the outfield under the, um, under the jumbotron right there on the grass. And, and if you haven't been on Coors Field, it's amazing. The grass is literally like a quarter inch thick, right? Perfect. Perfectly manicured. And I mean, it was incredible. I just imagine, like, the groundskeeper out there with scissors, right? He's got some, like, binoculars, and he's just out there with scissors. Anybody had that neighbor, by the way, that's just, like, their, their yard is always green, and then you can catch them, like, early in the morning with scissors, like, literally trimming? Like, there's no shame in that, right? Like, you care for what you're passionate about. You care for what you find purpose in. You care for what you find meaningful, And so God has said, you are my groundskeeper for this beautiful place, and I want you to rule it well, and I want you to actually care for it. And I wonder, what would it look like if we took this job description and actually ran with it, right? And we expanded it past our yards to this world that God has created. What would this world look like if we saw, man, that was my job description. I'm the groundskeeper for God's world. It's a beautiful job description. But I think this picture of the Imago Dei, of being made in God's image, I think if we understand it right, it has massive implications on our life. And here's what I mean. One of the realities that I think we all battle is that we are searching for affirmation. Now, you may say, well, that's not me. But, but I think if we look back at our lives, we're going to see we all are searching for affirmation in one way or another. And it could be in career. It could be in a relationship. It, it, it could be in, in social media posts. I mean, it could, you can do it a lot of ways. But we're all searching for affirmation. And what happens is we begin to, to find some glimpse of it. And like, again, this cultural script. We begin to find some glimpse of it. We're on this quest. And we end up trying to find it with culture and what culture says. But here's the problem. It never fills the void. It never actually works. And so we always keep searching. We always keep going on to the next thing. We always keep trying to find that thing that's going to affirm me and give me value and, and make me feel like I'm worth something. But I'm always going to find myself looking for the next thing because nothing actually works. And the reason is because we've been trying to find ourselves in the wrong story. This is why, John, this is why God gives us Genesis 1. Because he's trying to show us the right story. I know I give you this quote all the time, but it's one of my favorites. I think it captures the human heart. It's what C.S. Lewis says. He says that if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, and if no other story can satisfy this longing I have to be affirmed and this longing I have to find value and purpose and meaning, then that means the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. I was made for a Genesis 1 world. And so we find ourselves in this this battle, and I think what God is telling us in Genesis 1, he's saying, let me tell you who you are. Don't let how you feel about yourself tell you who you are. Don't let how culture feels about you tell you who you are. Don't let what somebody else has to say about you tell you who you are. Let me tell you who you are. And you know who you are? You are a son or a daughter of the king. And as the son and daughter of the king, I give you the authority and the responsibility to rule well. And the implications of that are huge for us because here's what this means. This means that your life matters. 
See, being made in the image of God means that your life is more important than you can imagine. See, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we fall in this little trap and we, we find ourselves in a difficult season of life and we say, I just really don't. Yeah, I, I don't know that I, yeah, this doesn't really matter. Like, why try? Kind of, you know, why put the effort in? I think Genesis 1, 26 to 28 saying, no, your life matters more than you could ever imagine because you were made in my image and I have given you the purpose and the plan for my creation and that is your job description. Your life matters more than you could ever imagine. Think, think about it like this. Okay, for six days we've seen God creating, right? And we see that he's created uh, all kinds of things. He's created fish, he's created birds, he's created animals, he's created little critters that run around. And then God says, we're going to make mankind in my image. That means that you've been made uniquely. That, that no matter what society wants to tell you, that you are more valuable. You are the crown jewel of God's creation. And you've been given a unique set of characteristics that separate you from everything else in, the, in, in, in God's creation. Let, let me explain how this works. I think there's really three ways we see this play out. First way is this. You have the ability to have a relationship with God unlike any other of God's creation. How many of you guys like to have some maybe quiet time in the morning? Maybe the morning's your time, and so you get up early, and, and, and it's you, and it's your dog, right? And you pour a cup of coffee, and you're kind of just sitting there with your dog. It's kind of my routine. I like to get up. I like to make an espresso and open the Bible or look out the window and just think. And, but I've got this two-year-old bulldog, and he's a stud. I'm just going to tell you, he's a stud. But this three-year-old bulldog, and, and what does he do while I'm sitting here trying to, to talk to God? He's either licking his paws, which makes me want to lose it, right? It's like the sickest sound ever. It's imp- How many of you guys know it's impossible to read your Bible when your dog is licking their paws? I'm just saying, that is the devil's work, right? God created dogs. Genesis 3, the devil started using dogs to lick their paws. And then I'm just telling you, it is the grossest thing ever. Or they're rummaging for food. So they're sniffing the corners and they're trying to hope you find, like you left a pepperoni or something somewhere. And, and, and so here I am trying to talk to God and here he is just trying to find something to chew on. He's not connected with God. No other animal connects with God. But God created us with a unique ability to connect with God. We have a spiritual connection, our spirit to God's. Another way this works out is that we are created to rule over creation, right? So you and I have a unique relationship with creation. It's why people are flooding to Colorado, right? Because we love to look at the mountains. We want to hike. I know you guys got those, you know, native go-home stickers on the back of your cars. Like, get out of here, Right? <laughs> But hey, look, I came from the flatland. We love this place. That's why we all come here. We have this unique relationship with creation. But it's different than animals. Because while you and and I, we love it, and we say we need to protect it, and and we need to plant more trees, or we need to do whatever we do, my dog doesn't care about that. He's digging a hole in the ground to bury a bone. Or he's just destroying my mulch. I'm just, you know, I mean, how many bags of mulch you got to really put down? It's, It's ridiculous. But animals don't care. Lions aren't worried about the earth, Right? They're worried about what they're going to eat next. So you and I have this, this, this unique relationship with creation, but also we have a unique relationship with each other. Like you and I have the ability to have relationships with each other that no other animals have. And, and so I think it, it separates us so differently than anything God has created. And what God is saying is that you are the crown jewel of my creation, and I've created you with unique abilities and characteristics to reflect me and govern and rule and lead this world that I have created. And that means so much because it means your life is worth it. And so when you are walking through a hard time, 
Or, or you have been uh, dealing with a season of depression or anxiety or doubt. Or you have been having somebody say things about you that isn't true. And, and, and you're, all of a sudden you're starting to wonder, is, is it true what, what they're saying? Genesis 1 is saying you have been created by God, the creator. And that means that your life is worth it. And you have value, and you have purpose, and you have meaning. It's kind of like you know that first movie of Harry Potter, or if you guys read the books, but Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone, and, and Hagrid goes, and Harry's having his 11th birthday, but he's in like the little room and the little island, and it's raining, and then Hagrid busts in, and he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm just Harry. He's like, hi, just Harry. And then he, he tells, and Harry says, I'm, there's nothing special about me. And what does Hagrid say? Yeah, there is. You are a wizard. In a really big, beautiful way, Genesis 1, God is saying to us that you are God's son and God's daughter, which means that your life matters, that your life is more important than you can ever imagine. So we have to stop letting other people tell us how to feel. We have to stop letting ourselves tell us who we are. And we got to stop letting culture try to direct our path. We've got to start letting God tell us who we are. And you want to know the best part of this? When you get this, when you get that you were created in God's image, you realize something amazing. Here's what it is, that you are not the point. No, no, no at first, we, we like to be the point. But the reality is there is freedom in not being the point. See, God created us in his image to reflect him and to lead and rule and govern everything he has made, which that means it's not all about me. And praise God for that. Because when it's all about me, I mess stuff up. And when it's all about me, I get pretty selfish and I get pretty prideful and I make some pretty bad decisions. But when it's about God and other people and God's creation, it's then that I'm actually free to live out God's purpose for my life. And when we realize this, when we realize that we are who God created us to be, it, it reveals that every single person that you ever meet, that every single person that you ever talk to, that that crazy roommate of yours, that that person at checkout line at King Supers last week during the strike who wanted to argue with the HR manager who happened to be checking people out because everybody was on strike. It means that the, the mean person on social media that, that, that comments on all your posts, it means that every single one of them were created in God's image too. And this means it changes how you respond, treat, and react. See, notice what God says in verse 27. He says, we're going to make them in our image. We're going to give them this job description. And he says in verse 27, so God created man, hence intention, purpose. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God, what? Blessed them. So, so what God is saying is that I've created everybody, everything, and everyone, and everything, male and female, all have my image on them, created with my likeness. And that means every single one of them have purpose. Let me ask you the question. When you think of people, do you think of them that way? When you think of people, do you think of that person that just cut you off in traffic on I-25 and you were already 10 minutes late to work? That person was made in the image of God just like you are. So I think the implications of this are huge for us too because it changes the way we think about people. One of the realities that we have seen these last two years that have been magnified, is that, is that we live in an us-versus-them mentality. And you see it everywhere. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see it. Chiefs fans versus Bills fans. Versus, I mean, you guys just booed me a few minutes ago for wearing Chiefs socks on stage. I mean, I'm getting booed again. 
There's an us versus them mentality in life, right? You see it in politics. You see it in um, churches. You see it in the workplace. I mean, we're, we're living through the great resignation right now. And, and a lot, if you read articles on, on the great resignation, it's just that's the us versus them. Well, it's management versus the employees. People just don't get it. Strikes, right? It's this us versus them mentality, and it's been magnified. It's always been there. But we see it more now in the pandemic. We see it more now through the way we live. And the problem is with the us versus them mentality, it takes somebody else and it makes them less valuable. Because me, we're, we're insiders, right? We're great. But them out there, no, they're not so great. And the longer we live in that, the more we begin to devalue who they are. David Brooks, he's a columnist for the New York Times. And he writes an article about this, about just this idea of how us versus them really divides culture. And it leads us to believe that people are rotten to the core. Notice what he says. David Brooks says that us versus them causes you to find yourself in a society with rampant dehumanization, where people are barraged with crude stereotypes and are increasingly detached from the complexities of reality and make them feel unseen as individuals. Now, this isn't just an American problem. This is a Genesis 3 problem. This is a humanity problem. But the reality is that us versus them puts people into little categories, and we begin to devalue them less and value them less and value them less. And they mean a little bit less, and they mean a little bit less, and all of a sudden, they're less than human. And God's saying, what? I created everyone in my image. See, it's this kind of thinking that leads us to, to, to be able to look back at a thing like Nazi Germany and go, how did that happen? Well, it's, it's the problem. It's the us versus them. It's why we as Christians have to be the one that leads the charge on valuing the lives of unborn babies, of caring for those with special needs, on taking care of, uh, of the homeless and taking care of, uh, of the orphans. And, because the world doesn't see it. It's us versus them. It's us as Christians that see that God has called all of us to be on this journey together. You know, you know here in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to Genesis 3, and we're going to see why all this happened. And we're going to see that, that we rebelled, that sin entered the world, that everything got fractured, and that everything got broken. And it's easy for you and me to look at this world and, again, throw our hands up and go, why, why even care I mean, it's too far gone, right? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's too far. How can we make a difference? But here's what I want you to see. The Bible says that it's not too far gone because Jesus. Because, yeah, we broke the image of God, and we haven't lived up to our job description very well. But the Bible tells us that Jesus entered into humanity for us to redeem and restore and redeclare God's image and God's plan for you and for me. Because when Jesus came and he died on the cross for us and he rose from the grave, he declared that the image of God will prevail. And God is continually working through his people. And so if you have said yes to Jesus in your life, that means that Jesus is restoring. God is restoring his image and his plan and his purpose for you. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. He says this. He says, uh, talking about this idea that God is restoring the image of God day by day in our lives. He says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of the Son. It's saying that God knew before you were ever born if you were going to say yes to Jesus. And that, that, that God's plan was for those who said yes to Jesus, that he was going to conform them to begin to look more and more like Jesus. And that doesn't mean that, that you just all of a sudden one day snap your fingers and you're, you're holier than now. That's not the case. It's that God is changing you and shaping you and molding you from the inside out. See, God has predestined 
us to be conformed to the image of the Son. Notice this, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus died, rose from the grave. One day, everybody who says yes to Jesus, they will also rise. We'll talk about that in Genesis, long, or we'll talk about that in Revelation. We've got a ways to go. So verse 30, though, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice, God is talking about something that's going to happen future, glory, heaven, as past tense. That means if you said yes to Jesus, then you are on the path of life, and that God is conforming you and changing you and shaping you to be more and more like Jesus, because you are the image of God. And God is still accomplishing that. And, and that means that every human being has potential. That means that every single person you come across this week, no matter how rude they are or how much you don't agree with them, that they have the potential of glory because of Jesus. Because everyone is made in God's image, everyone deserves honor, respect, and dignity. Because God came and Jesus died for every single one of them too, just like he did for you. And this should change the way we live. I want to give you a, a C.S. Lewis quote from The Weight of Glory. He says this. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. Just bear with me. He says this in The Weight of Glory. He said, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, but it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet. God is saying that the person you see now, you have no idea what they're going to be someday. That, that the person that you see now, you have no idea who they're going to become because God is moving, God is working, God is transforming us, conforming us into the image of his son. Notice what he says next. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to, onto or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct our dealings with one another. All friendship, all loves, all play, all politics. He says, there are no ordinary people that you have never talked to a mere mortal. He is saying that God wants to use you and me to help each other along on this journey as God is conforming us to look more and more like Jesus. Notice how he ends. He says, it is immorals whom we joke with. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and circumspection proper. Yeah, we, we covered that. Go to the next slide here, if you would. Okay, he says this. He says that... Um, that nobody is, a, uh, there's no ordinary people. You never talk to a mere mortal. He says that nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Meaning that a nation can, can exist for hundreds of years, but you are immortal. You are going to outlive that nation far, far, far longer than it ever existed. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, which is communion, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is saying? He said that everybody you come across, that God is conforming them and changing them. You have no idea what the end of the story is for them. And so treat people like they were made in God's image because that's how you want people to treat you. And together on this journey, we are going to allow God to move in us, to shape us into the people that he created us to be. And as Christians, this changes everything.
when we realize that we were made in God's image. So ask yourself, what if this week I started looking at people the way God does? And I started to see that everybody was made in the image of God. How would that change your relationships at home? How would that change your relationships with your kids? How would that change your relationships at work or your neighbor? See, I think it's a game changer. See, four, here's what I want to take away. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God is showing us that we can stop searching in all the other stories to find ourselves because God has showing us the story that we were created for. And so for some of you right now who are walking through a, a, a season where you're, you're trying to figure out who you are, could God be saying to you, find yourself in my story? Because my story is bigger and better and more beautiful than any other story could ever be. So God says, see who you are and then go and live it out. Because God has said to us, in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything that I have created. So as I invite the worship team back on stage, I want to leave you with a question. This week, how can you live out your purpose and your plan? This week, how, how can you rule over what God has created? How can you, you reflect God? God's image is stamped on you, and he wants to use you to reflect him. So how can you do that? See, for some of us, I think that we have to, to learn to, to, to see ourselves as people that God has created, men and women that God loves so much that Jesus came for. And it means that we got to quit giving ourselves such a hard time because it never works. And we got to start realizing that God has given you a plan and a purpose for your life that is far bigger than anything you could ever do on your own. So see yourself for that beautiful creation that God put here for a reason. For some of us, I think it means that we need to start thinking of others as being stamped by the Imago Dei. And that means that we have to change the way we talk, and we got to change the way that we speak to people, the way we talk about people behind their backs. It means we got to change the way that we respond to people when they do something or say something that we don't like or we don't agree with, because we don't know what God is doing in their life. Because he's shaping them too. See, God is all, he's given all of us this beautiful job description. What would it look like if we all partnered together to live this out? But here's the thing. While God calls you and gives you purpose and asks you to step in and follow him and lead a life where you live out his purpose for your life, he's not gonna force you to do it. He's giving you the choice to say yes. So this week, you have to make the decision. Are you going to say yes? Because I sure hope you do.